Hello, today we're speaking with Sebastian Manchester, co-founder and CTO at Jazza Energy. Welcome to the podcast, Sebastian. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. To start, could you tell us a little bit about Jazza Energy? Sure. So Jazza was founded in 2015. We started in Canada after spending a few years working on rural energy projects around Tanzania. And the idea was to scale up some of the early projects we had built in Tanzania and build a company around it. So originally it was a a project that was part of a charity called Community Forest International. I was a grad student who was kind of looking for interesting projects to work on. And my friend and co-founder, Jeff Schnur, who's now the CEO of Jazza, was running a charity called Community Forest International in Tanzania. And together we kind of started thinking about really simple ways to provide access to electricity in some of the communities he was already working in, running his organization. And the the basic idea that we came up with, which is still kind of the fundamental business model that we operate on today, is charging portable battery packs that customers can t- take home and use to power their electronics. So we built one energy system that serves an entire community and customers can charge battery packs at that energy system and then walk home with the batteries. That's what we built for the first time in 2013. And that's basically what we build today. The technology has come a long way. How we run the business at scale um, has changed a lot, but that's the basic idea. Portable battery packs charged from solar energy at retail shops that customers can use to power their homes. That's so fascinating. And I guess, I think, believe you and your co-founder are both from Canada. And so I guess what le- led to uh, Jeff you know, focusing on Tanzania and his charity work there initially? So after, you know, Jeff and I grew up together. We're both from a small town in Canada called Sackville, New Brunswick. And after high school, Jeff took a, a non-traditional route and just started traveling the world. I went to engineering school and then we kind of met up later on in the summers and we would work together planting trees. It's a typical job for Canadian students to make enough money to live through the school year. I, actually, a good friend of mine uh, used to do that and uh, it was, it was, he was an academic and it was his most lucrative job I think he's ever had. Yeah, it can be very lucrative, very painful, but lucrative. Right. But fun. Anyway, so, so as tree planters, we'd meet up in the summer and then Jeff would continue traveling. I'd go back to school. Jeff ended up on a small island um, off the coast of Tanzania called Pemba. And while he was there, some of his local friends were very interested in, you know, this career he has as a Canadian tree planter that affords him the ability to travel the world and spend time in their communities. And so they started pondering how can they do tree planting in in Pemba, which is which was like facing a lot of issues around deforestation and and obviously like there's there's a lot of good reasons to plant more trees. So Jeff with some local friends started an organization called Community Forests International and you know initially I think in the first year they planted a few hundred thousand trees just by collecting seeds, building little nurseries around in different communities 
you know, working a lot of working with a lot of the local communities to understand what trees grow where, how they grow, really, really leveraging the local expertise and then using his resources kind of and connections back in Canada to raise money to fund the organization. And over the course of, you know, about a decade, he scaled that organization to plant, you know, I think over 4 million trees. They're now operating across several countries in East Africa. It's a very cool organization. And that's how we ended up in Tanzania. It was basically like the first projects we built that I described. We, we built a small energy system on a small island off the coast of Pemba, so an island off the coast of an island. That's where we tested the model. And initially, it was just a one-off project. But after I finished grad school and had spent a few years kind of working in the energy industry, Jeff and I kept thinking about these systems we'd built and like, what could we do to make them better? Um, we, we found that there was definitely some potential there because people were still using the product years later. It was very cheap to install and very easy to maintain. So we thought we should, we should see what else we can do with this. It made sense to, to launch in Tanzania because we already had a network there. We, Jeff had already scaled an organization there. And it's just like also incredibly beautiful place to work and live. So like good excuse to go spend time on the tropical island. Yeah, not, not bad at all. And I guess at that point, you know, you're talking to Jeff, you have done this, this small kind of pilot project in essence, but maybe hadn't realized it might be a pilot project to something larger. Were you, what was your kind of mindset at that point? You're like, oh, I want to start something and like, this is a good opportunity. Or you're like, oh, there is this existing kind of framework that gets me very excited and I'd love to continue working on that. Well, it was kind of a combination of both. Like on one hand, the problem was very interesting to me being 600 million people living in sub-Saharan Africa without access to electricity. This is sort of what got me interested in, in, um, you know, what eventually became jazz initially. It was just as a grad student, I was studying energy storage, thinking about how to integrate big commercial wind farms onto the grid using energy storage as a buffer. And then at the same time, I was doing some independent research and reading about how some of the, some of the technologies available that were being proposed to electrify rural communities, a lot of like microgrids, a lot of kind of solar diesel hybrid grids. And it was pretty clear that the cost of energy storage was coming down. The cost of solar panels was coming down. The availability of kind of like the, the, the cost of you know, personal electronics was coming down. People were, people were starting to use smartphones in a lot of rural communities, but still have nowhere to charge them. And so it just seemed like a very obvious big problem that could be solved with existing technology that just wasn't really being solved. I wanted to figure out why. And so that's when we started working on it, just to, to try and explore the problem and understand what, what was preventing 600 million people from having reliable access to electricity. And I guess, you know, as you kind of dug into it, like, what were those reasons, right? Like, it seems like jazz, it seems so obvious, like in hindsight, but you know, why, why, why were there not like 500 competitors already sitting there kind of doing something similar? Well, there, there, there were a lot, there still are quite a few. I mean, a lot of people have tried to build a reliable, affordable energy access technology for 
for Sub-Saharan Africa. It's been done. I think, I mean, one, one big reason why it was, you know, I think the time was right for us was because we're kind of just coming in as the cost of, of batteries is coming way down and the cost of solar had already been dropping quite a bit. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult market to operate in. Our customers earn less than $2 a day. So it's a, it's a hard customer to sell to. Understanding the customer, how they spend, how they prioritize their spending, and what they're going to actually use energy for is, is not an easy thing to figure out. and something we're still learning. I think a lot of companies never really solve that problem. And it's very expensive to, to learn those type of lessons, um, especially if you're building infrastructure like a microgrid. And the, the reality is like our customers don't have a lot of money to spend on energy. The demand for energy is also quite low. So it's a market that maybe some, I think a lot of people will just ignore because they assume people don't have money, people don't need electricity. Like why would we try and sell, sell there? And that's just something that we think is false. Yeah, it's, but, but still like to this day, like I, I'm not, I'm not sure why this problem hasn't been solved because like we're working on it and it seems like we're getting there. And I, I do think that Jazza will solve energy access. And I hope that other companies can help because there's a lot of work to do. No, absolutely. And I guess when you're trying implementing, you know, a new project, your product in a particular community, who's the, I guess, buyer for that? Like who are you trying to contact first? So we sell directly to customers. Customers, our customers are people who live in the communities that we electrify. So basically the way it works is when we select a site to build a hub, we recruit local women to kind of run and manage the hub. We call them Jazza Stars. And then, you know, through the process of kind of onboarding them, training them, and equipping them with all of the you know, technology, know-how and and infrastructure to then like start serving customers they've already got relationship with a lot of the people that ultimately start using the service and so the the hubs themselves are like pretty interesting looking it's a it's like a a small shop but it's a kind of prefab building that you know we worked with an architect friend to, to help design and it looks really cool. So people are interested in what, what it is. We get a lot of organic sales just from people coming up to the hub and seeing what, you know, what are we doing? And once people start using the service, there's a lot of word of mouth because it's like a very easy product to use. It doesn't require any special setup. Like we don't need to send a technician or anything to set your home up. You can just walk home with the battery and a lighting kit that you get from us. And on day one, within a few seconds, have electric light in your home. A lot of the times for the first time. So, so it's typically, like our typical customers are, I mean, it varies a lot by region, but customers who are frustrated with spending their hard-earned money on kerosene for a lantern or we, we recently launched in Nigeria, and a lot of our customers there are used to, to burning a diesel generator, and that's just not like a 
pleasant thing to have running in your home when you're just trying to relax. Like raise a family, kids inhaling that and everything. It's not good. It's not good. And so the the hubs themselves, so how, how do you choose the specific community? Like there's a lot of communities you, I'm sure you could service, but what, how do you kind of create that priority list? It's based on number of households within a specific radius from a location that we think would be good. So, I mean, kind of take geospatial data sets about population. We kind of overlay that with electrification data and find communities where there's a lot of houses within a close proximity that do not have good or reliable access to electricity. And then typically that will generate like a prioritized list of sites. We look for regions where there's a cluster of sites that we could serve from a single kind of anchor community. And then we will do like field visits. Our our team will go and kind of survey some customers, try and understand what the situation is there. If we could look, look for suitable sites that we could lease to build a hub on. And then based on a bunch of, site selection criteria we can then approve or move on find a a better alternative for the community and that's a process that we're still refining and you know learning from hubs that we've already built what makes a good site what doesn't because we've now got several years worth of operating data from about 100 sites in tanzania so pretty good pretty good data set to learn from no it's amazing congratulations to get to 100 sites that's 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 really that's really exciting I guess when I think about the energy space in uh, most of the developed world, um, it's incredibly well regulated. And basically, the business that you're building in Tanzania is probably not legal in certain parts of the developed world um, in, in that particular way. Are there kind of local regulations you have to deal with? And, and what's the kind of general approach? And I guess, how are local agencies, governments, et cetera, you know, responding to the work you're doing? Yeah, it's a very good question. The, there are regulations. Typically, Regulations start to impact energy providers uh, at around, in Tanzania, it's 10 kilowatt threshold. So if you run a microgrid over 10 kilowatts, there's a bunch of regulations you have to follow. We are quite a bit under that. A typical hub is about three and a half kilowatts of solar PV. So it's a pretty small system, but it can still serve. That system can serve anywhere between 200 and 300 customers, depending on how they use energy. So we fall under the regulations for Tanzania. That said, it, it is also like a purely DC energy system. So it's all low voltage. So anything under 50 volts is kind of considered inherently safe. So that also helps. In terms of government engagement, like we do spend a lot of time engaging local government as part of the site selection process when we move into a new region you know there's a lot of steps to go through to make to engage local authorities make sure we are following all of the the right steps and it it, it's it's important to like ensure that we are focusing on not only like communities where they, I mean, they, they can help us identify communities where they think there's a need and doing that gives them sort of ownership over the outcomes of the project, builds kind of some social capital to be able to say like, 
we brought Jazza to the community, got power. And in terms of the like utilities, there are the electrical grid is pretty widespread in Tanzania and in Nigeria. But a lot of customers still haven't connected because they can't afford whether it's like the connection fee, some places that's subsidized, but it's also expensive to wire your home and then buy the appliances to plug in. So a lot of a lot of customers just aren't connecting or choosing not to connect to the grid. And so Jazza provides an alternative that where customers can get electricity, we do start to fulfill the electrification mandates of the, the national utility, but without them having to spend money on expanding their infrastructure to, to reach every single home. Because that's at current electric, electricity consumption rates for a lot of rural households, it's just not economically feasible to build out that grid. Just because the amount of money people spend on electricity is so small, the, the capital costs are just will never be recovered. And, and most of the electrical utilities in Sub-Saharan Africa operate at a loss. So any, anything we can do to increase electrification in rural communities seems to, to be received well because it's helping fulfill that electrification mandate. Yeah, there's this kind of fascinating history around the electrification of rural areas. I know Ireland best, but also a bit of the U.S. And the Ireland you know, has a lot of, kind of scattered small islands. You know, you're Canadian, there's a lot of scattered small islands as well. And getting electrification across those islands was something the national government decided to do, but still took multi-decades of, of effort uh, and at an incredible expense. And I guess, but there was also like the, the kind of economic ability to, to spend that money and, and see that kind of return on investment, right? Because when you electrify a place, it starts being more productive nearly by definition. And so, yeah, it makes kind of complete sense that you can basically Hand, maybe not hand in hand, be partners with the utility, but uh, you know you're, you're kickstarting the economic development of these areas in a way that would potentially be beneficial to the utility down the road. Uh, when as these clusters of, of communities become more economically viable for something more like a, a full build out of the grid. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't. I don't think Jazz is going to be like the current model of energy distribution from portable batteries. It's like the fastest, cheapest way to get electricity in homes right now, but I don't think it's necessarily the future. This is just step one. So we want to be, you know, helping get as many households on electricity as possible now. And then we want to be part of that transition into the next, the next phase of electrification of rural communities, whether that's building out microgrids or connecting to larger, larger grids. One other thing that we're doing is, you know, collecting a lot of data on household energy consumption that could help inform where and when it would make sense to build out some more more infrastructure. That's interesting. So in essence, you could down the road be like a kind of larger scale product developer and basically the energy company, because you already own the that relationship, right, with all these, all these communities um, in a way that they probably love you, right? You, you, you have your Jazz of Stars running around. Uh, kind of building that like strong relationship totally yeah we so we own the hubs we own the batteries we own the customer relationship and besides just being a, ne a network for energy distribution we also see our network as a distribution layer for other types of services 
because we've built the retail footprint. We've, we've trained customer facing employees who know the community, know their customer. And so there's all kinds of interesting add-on services we could think about layering into our network beyond just energy. So the first step though, is giving people power. The next step is, is the, is where, where things get really interesting, but right now we're still, still just trying to electrify houses. No, absolutely. And, and in terms of that kind of growth trajectory over the next couple of years, yeah, I guess what are the what are the kind of constraints from the speed of your growth? Is it people, capital, uh, suitable communities, something else? So we've been pretty been pretty deliberate recently about growth in that we want to make sure that we're building a business that's worth growing. So we've been very focused on hub unit economics and making sure you know every Every hub we build is profitable. Every customer we serve, you know, that there's positive unit economics because we have to not only build the hub, we also have to manufacture, design and manufacture the battery, ship it around the world, deploy it into remote communities. It's like there's a lot of it's a it's a complicated and expensive, capitally intensive business to run. So we want to make sure before we scale up, we're doing it really well. So so. Currently, we're at, we have about 100 locations between Tanzania and Nigeria, where we just launched. The, the, we're actually going to be raising our Series A over the next couple of months. Exciting. And so that's, gonna, that's one constraint that will unlock growth because we do feel very good about the, the, the state of the business. We're ready to grow. People is obviously a constraint. You know, we need to recruit a lot of Jazz stars to run our hubs. And so there's a lot of a lot of work to do there to, to build the process to kind of onboard the next thousand Jazz stars. Supply chain has been a constraint, especially over the past year, as kind of semiconductor shortages have impacted us, the kind of global shipping container shortage and shipping network congestion uh, slowed things down. And also kind of finding a factory that we can scale up manufacturing with. But a lot of those challenges we're working through, we're, we're comfortable with where we're currently operating. I don't see that as the constraint right now. And site selection, there's about 2,000 sites in Tanzania we think would would make good good communities to build a hub in, and many more in Nigeria. Those are our two operating markets, but those will, should keep us busy for the next year or two, but we're definitely looking at expanding into new regions as well. We've learned a lot from expanding into Nigeria. This all just actually happened in the last three months. So a lot of this is still fresh, but we'll take those lessons and the, and the systems we've built to launch into a new market and, and be looking at the next, the next mar- market to expand to. So with the right systems to, to, to recruit and train Jazza stars, a supply chain that can feed enough batteries into, into hubs and the capital to, to build it all. I think right now we're pretty well set up to grow, but again, like we're still learning and surely we'll, we'll, we'll find new constraints as, as we, as we do grow because it's, we're, we're always learning. We have spent time 
there have been certain periods of time where we've we've like grown really fast, like added 20 hubs in a month just to see what happened. And so I feel like we have worked out a lot of those kinks, but doing that month after month after month is going to be something new. So it will be interesting, but I'm confident we, we can do it. And, and I would imagine retention is like close to 100% um, once, you, once you build out a hub. It's, I mean, 100%, I wish it was 100%. I mean, a lot of people will try the service and, and for one reason or another, it might not be for them. We do have pretty good retention. Overall, it's about like all-time retention. You know, after operating in a lot of these communities for up to three years, it's like 60%. So there's a number of reasons why customers will churn, but typically customers who start using the service stay with us and the lifetime the lifetime value of the customers is well worth building the hub and the battery pack to serve them. Yeah, I, I guess I was more cons- like referencing the, the hub itself, right? Like once it's built, it, it continues to be an, like an asset that is like a, a positive producing asset ongoing. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty low maintenance. Solar panels are magic as far as I'm concerned. And once the, like, once the hub's installed, you know, there's a bit of bit of maintenance some troubleshooting that needs to happen every now and then but largely the hubs just keep working and try to manage you know you're you're i believe uh actually i think you're in new york right now you're, you're spending your time i believe between canada and tanzania as is the rest of, some of the rest of the team and then obviously you have a lot of people kind of on on the ground in, in tanzania and now nigeria what have you kind of learned about trying to manage a team across all these different time zones uh multiple cultures and Things that maybe didn't go so well, but now you kind of learned from over the last couple of years. Learned a lot about this. I mean, one thing I feel like we were we were well prepared for the global pandemic because we had already been working as a pretty remote team for a few years leading up to that. So it helped us kind of ride through the early bumps. But it's it's a lot of work to run an international company especially where we have a hardware team based in Canada that's designing the product very far away from the end user of that product. We have manufacturing going on in China and we have most of our operations, like pretty much all of our operational team in Tanzania is Tanzanian. Um, And then it's mostly just the co-founders, Jeff and I, who kind of bridge the gap between our like engineering finance teams in in North America, our operations team in Tanzania and Nigeria, and manufacturing in China. One thing that we've learned is the importance of building good data systems. This is especially useful for the engineering team. It's like the best way we can learn about our customers, how they use the product. Because we can't be there, it's not as it's not as easy for a hardware engineer in, in Canada to talk to a farmer in rural Tanzania. Besides the distance, there's the cultural gaps and the, the language. So we do we we've built a lot of data systems, both in terms of like how customers are using energy, how they transact at the hub. And that's helped us learn a lot about what the product needs to do how it's helped us evolve the product. The product we started with is very different from the product we're, 
we're operating today. We started with a lead acid battery that was just, um, I mean, it was basically just lead acid battery hardwired to an LED light bulb. Right. Now it's like, it's a custom lithium ion battery pack that's got a custom battery management system that does data logging, you know, controls some business logic so we can, we can meter energy on both number of watt hours, units of energy discharged, but also we can meter it based on time. We can see how much power people are using at different times of day, how much, how much energy people use on, on each different, on each, each swap. And so we've learned a lot about what the product needs to do. And that's helped us build feedback loops between engineering and our customers. And then on the software side too, like we, we, we rely on a lot of customer feedback that we can collect through the hub. So finding, building software tools to translate what Jazz of Stars are hearing and seeing in the communities, turning that into actionable data that the rest of the team can use. So yeah, a big thing is building feedback loops. It's also been really important to just give people ownership over the their responsibilities because a lot you know, a lot of times people are working kind of extremely hard in isolation and they just need need to be able to make decisions and and follow their intuition on things and ideally we're there to support and help them learn and develop but ultimately we want we want people to be kind of accountable for their own work and in a remote setting that's been super important and has worked well for us yeah i think that uh, i would also work remote and i was at a remote company when in COVID hit and you know a lot of the things that you can kind of take for granted when you're all co-located you generally in a remote culture have to kind of define and structure very early on and so aspects of culture people kind of just like take the take the lead from the founders or the early employees on culture if it's all in person but like being very specific about like how we communicate asynchly, how we kind of own our tasks and our roles, like that that's just necessary. Otherwise the company itself just wouldn't be able to kind of progress in a remote fashion. And so I think of the big power of something like the word culture used in startups is just allowing real alignment over how to solve problems and then allowing people to kind of actually solve them themselves once there's alignment over that piece of culture. Totally, totally, yeah. It's um, the cult, the Culture is, is really important in how we build what we build. And our organization, we've really put jazz, tried to put Jazz Stars at the center of it. And like keeping that in mind, anything we're working on should be like directly benefiting Jazz Star. It's kind of the core, the core of the company. If a Jazz Star is doing well, their customers are doing well. Jazz starts getting rich, then the company's doing well. So that's helped a lot. And like, you know, Jazz Stars are definitely the most important people in our company and personally inspire me. And I know it's that's true across the entire company. It's pretty it's it's amazing to see the the confidence and the power that Jazz Stars can develop themselves and you know become leaders in the community with 
a lot for a lot of the time it's the it's their first job it's the it's the first opportunity they've had to kind of really show the community what they can do and they always they blow us away and they blow the community away and what about i guess kind of other types of kind of local development that can, can occur are you seeing any kind of interesting commercial use cases you know now that you have some sort of electrification people people are, are, are great at like figuring out cool new things you know with heavy constraints and so have you seen any kind of interesting you know projects businesses and so on kind of rise up alongside your hubs definitely like some some of the cool use cases i've seen for our product it's uh a lot of barbers use the jazz pack. Nothing worse than losing power in the middle of a haircut. Right. So um, the the jazz pack has become a, a staple in a lot of rural barbers because it can easily power a set a set of DC clippers all day, every day. And then it, at the same time, it can do like a boombox, so you can you can get your haircut in style. The another one is people running basically like home theaters. They'll use the jazz pack to power a TV and DVD, or a, a TV that you can plug a USB stick in and just like charge people admission to watch movies or a football game or whatever. That's pretty popular use case, and those customers will typically like be swapping a few times a day because they're just running running nonstop and doing doing pretty well for themselves. And then a lot of customers will just use, who are using it for business, will just use it for light. So for example, if they're running a market stand, um, a lot of markets operate at night and having light, having light is helpful. <laughs> I think we, we understand that. Right. Um, it can also charge phones. So people use it to do kind of char- phone charging in their business. But yeah, it's a lot, a lot of our customers are also like shop owners. So it's not just a product for the home. And I think that's just, this is kind of the next challenge from a product perspective is for us to figure out how to kind of build on that. Nigeria especially is interesting because a lot of businesses will be using generators to power fridges, TVs. There's, there's a lot more AC loads in rural communities in Nigeria than there, than there is in Tanzania. So our current product focus is kind of building on the evolution of our jazz packs, our batteries to build something that can serve a customer that, that wants to run their business, but can't afford both the like financial and environmental cost of running a generator nonstop. Makes a ton of sense. And I guess thinking about people who are trying to maybe inspired by our conversation and like, oh, that's, that's a pretty cool startup. You know, it's, it's the kind of company that not enough people are building and we should have more of these. If, if somebody's kind of at the stage of their career where they're interested in starting a company, is there anything that you, you'd like to advise them, um, ways that they could kind of maximize their success starting a company similar to yours? My suggestion or advice, I mean... Our company is a little bit unique because we operate in a part of the world that not a lot of people who I assume are listening to this podcast will have experience with. Like you just kind of have to go there and like you have to be there to really understand how to 
understand the customer that you're trying to serve. I think that's the most important thing. It's like, what, what is the problem you're solving? Who are you solving it for? And so for us, like we spent, Jeff and I both spent several years living and working in rural Tanzania before we started to feel like we had a, a good understanding and it's still something that I'm, that I struggle with. So understanding the problem. And then if you're moving to a new country to solve someone else's problem, like make sure you have ex very good local partnerships to help bridge the gap. But that's the main thing, like make sure that you're solving an actual problem and ideally a big one that a lot of people have, but not necessarily. If there's like a small problem that you care a lot about, that's also probably worth solving. If you care about it, chances are someone else cares about it. And also just like, don't, don't be afraid to just start. Like I didn't have any experience in hardware. I didn't have any experience in software. I didn't have any experience in building a supply chain. Everything I've, I do today is like skills I've had to learn on the job. And so don't let, don't let that be a barrier to just starting. Like the most important thing is to just start. Once you know there's a problem, just start working on how to solve it. Don't like go to, don't go to grad school to learn how to solve a problem to start a company. Just like try and try and start the company and try and solve it. Maybe you need to go to grad school, but pro chances are, if it's a big enough problem, you can hire someone who already has those skills or you can learn the bare minimum until then. Yeah, especially because, you know, a lot of people who start something, it's often their second or third thing that actually, like, they've learned the skills needed. And so just get, get, get the first one, get the first one done. I mean, yeah. in, in your case, the first one's been very successful, of course. It's not true for all of us, not, tr not true for me. But I think it is very, very valuable to, to put yourself out there. And I was talking to somebody else recently about the, especially if you have the ability to take risks, right? Not everybody does, of course. And so it's obviously a great privilege to have the ability to take risky career moves and, and so on. And for those people who don't have that ability to take risks, like I think there's nearly a, maybe not quite as strong as a responsibility, but something similar that if you have the opportunity to take the, a risk to solve a big problem and you're interested in that problem, well, go for it. Get on a flight, yeah. uh, take the chance. Or go like, go find someone else who cares about that problem and help them do it. Because chances yeah. are someone else is trying to solve it too. Starting a startup is, is not for everyone. And like, I think more people should, should try it, but don't feel like you need to start a company to work on these types of problems. You can also find cool companies like Jazza and, and um, we're, we're looking for people who are hungry to solve problems who might not know. <laughs> know where to start they can just join us join us on our mission absolutely well uh sebastian has been great really enjoyed the conversation uh is there anything i should have asked you about but did not i will i'll just echo myself what i just said like jazz is growing we need help it's a big problem we're looking for people to to help us solve energy access and if you love big challenges you love learning you have an open mind, come join us. We will help you help you learn who you really are by working on very hard problems with people who are similarly passionate about solving big problems. And I, I do think we have a very, very impressive team. I love working with, with everyone at Jazza. Um, some, some of the smartest people I know are working on this.
problem with me at Jazza. So it sounds interesting. Please reach out. Absolutely. And we'll add your career page uh, link to the show notes. Uh, Sebastian, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.